Jim is a stonemason by trade. He's been researching the stone sites of New England for a very long time. That's his local area. Him and his brother Bill uh, pulled together the search for the Lost Giants TV show. And he's got a recent uh, History Channel special called the Roanoke Search for the Lost Colony. Uh, Jim famously had his TEDx talk removed from the internet uh, because of the very controversial subject of stone sites and giants. And just like Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake before him, um, the same thing happened. They got it removed. It's very controversial. Although Jim was one of the people that didn't make a big fuss about it uh, and just got on with the research. But... Um, and uh, basically, Jim's just come over to England. We were starting to put together more research on the global giant story. But this lecture, Jim's going to get into some of the subjects, starting off around his home area of New England and giving some other aspects, some other dimensions to the whole story of the giants. So please give a warm welcome to Jim Vieira. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to run through a lot of slides. Don't feel like you got to catch every piece of information. I'll tell you, tell you, uh, you know, the relative things. I mean, the um, relative, <laughs> the uh, noteworthy items. I'll point out and talk about. But I just, you know, to give you the scope of what we're talking about and the, the different angles that we approach the subject from. You know, Native American lore, uh, presidents, mystics, all, all these, uh, you know, vectors pointing to the theoretical possibility that giants once existed. So, um, you know, don't feel like stressed out if I'm running through a bunch of slides. So, as you said, uh, my brother and I did a show for the History Channel, and we just did a two-hour special, and hopefully you will see us again next fall uh, with Hugh and my brother on another far-reaching uh, mysteries exploration show. That's uh, Hugh and I in the show. So I'm a stonemason by trade. I live in Asheville, Massachusetts. You might guess I grew up in Boston. Uh, what I like to do is I've, I've built stone towers all around my town. I've built, you know, three 12-footers with my brother out in the yard. For the local theater company, we did all the stone installation, hundreds of feet of wall, fountains, all kinds of stone creations. I like to try to bring beauty and order to the environments and clean the woods and, and, and do things like this that uh, just people can drive by and appreciate. Um, you know, transduces of energy. Did this for a landscape architect. Um, did this thousand square foot patio um, in Vermont. Actually, that was a Steiner school. It's kind of cool. Uh, we do all kinds of, of, of jobs of different sizes and constructions. This is actually a fountain. There's a huge reservoir under there. We built this in Cooper's Corner in Florence, Mass. And this we just did for the Franklin Land Trust. It's like all our clients are really cool. It's nice. And uh, we cut into the side of the hill. Actually, we had to go up these stairs and bring every one of these stones that was like freaking that thick and muscle them up there. And I, that's what I do my whole life. But I, I'm a stone whisperer now, and I really understand how heavy stone is and, and how every stone wants to be placed in a particular area. It's very interesting. Uh, about 25 years ago, I started researching Native American civilizations and native stonework around the country and, and looked into the mysteries, started to look into the mysteries that we find out in the woods here uh, all the time. These are from Smithsonian Ethnology Reports. You have these uh, examples of stonework by Native Americans. You know, when we think Native American stonework, we think the Pueblos and the cliff dwellings out in the Southwest, but the reality is the eastern half of the country had amazing stonework everywhere. There, there was stone arched vaults in Iowa. This is uh, from 
Illinois, look, this was stone-lined and a burial in the stone mounds. And actually, that was an over seven-foot account by you know, uh, one of the Smithsonian's own scientists. In Wisconsin, you find the same thing. This is uh, one of the stone mounds found in Ohio. As a matter of fact, a 55-foot high, 189-foot base stone mound was found. And in 1823, the colonists took it apart to build a dam. And when they got to the bottom of it, they found seven burials. But can you imagine that? 55-foot high, 189-foot base, just this massive stone pyramid, if you will, in, in Licking County, Ohio. And so much of this stuff got taken apart by the colonists for raw materials for all their projects without a real respect for the wonderful civilizations that existed before here. The Tennessee Old Stone Fort, this massive uh, stone fort that was built over several hundred years. And this, um, we met with the park ranger in, in episode five of our show. And right here, he talked about the shaman would, would walk through this entranceway. And the solstice alignment was, it's not my gig, but it was like accurate to 0.3 degrees or something like that. So they, they, would walk, they would walk through here, fires were lit. This is the park ranger telling me. And the shaman would come in and lead the ceremony. Very interesting. Native culture was quite sophisticated and mysterious. You have stone forts all around hilltops around the Midwest. Thankfully, they were documented by Squire and Davis because they no longer exist. This is Spruce Hill right here. And here's a recreation of the kind of things, you know, somewhat defensive positions. It was this, this, this different world than we're taught um, in, in, in school about Native American civilizations. Very fascinating. And certainly from a stonemason's perspective. These are stone uh, vaults and burial mounds in Missouri. And we have burial, we have chambers all over the place, and you know, you, you gotta ask the question, you know, this was buried with tons of earth, and underneath you, you see these similar structures uh, that we find around here, and it's like, are they Native American? What are, what are we looking at? Are they pre-colonial? So you got a stone tower at Grave Creek. This was captured by Jeffrey Eastman in a lithograph, but this was part of the Grave Creek complex, and you see, obviously, there was a stone tower here, and there were towers all around the hilltops that unfortunately were destroyed, but you know, it was like Greek mythology here rather than disorganized civilizations like we talked about. So this um, interest in Native American stonework got me interested in the mound builders. The mound builder culture in the United States started in 3400 BC at Watson Break. Very, very interesting. Uh, a circular enclosure, there were no burials here. Uh, these first of all I'll show you kind of anomalies or outliers because they happened before the core of the mound building construction. Uh, I'll quickly say the mound builders were the Adena, Hopewell, and Mississippian cultures starting around 1000 BC all the way up to 1500 AD. The Adena were the first, the tall ones. The Adena had massive jaws and skulls. It's, it's uh, fairly recognized that they were seven feet and tall and the women were over six feet tall. So this is the, the first site I was talking about, uh, Poverty Point, 1500 BC. These earthen embankments would fill the Great Pyramid of Egypt 36 times. There was a thriving metropolis here on the Arkansas River, and the focal point of it was a 700 by 600 by 72 foot high bird effigy mound. And just this amazing flourishing civilization, they abandoned the site after 200 years. Nobody knows what happened to the uh, Poverty Point people. But then several hundred years later, the mound builders of the Ohio River Valley exploded. The Adena people, they were architects, they were uh, just, just wizards and shamans uh, ruled these people, and they did astonishing things. And you have these burial mounds all over the place. As to land Wisconsin, there's an aerial shot of it. 
from Native American folklore, we learn that you know, there were powerful shamans that led these tribes, that, that organized the construction of these sites. It wasn't slave labor, it was a, a communal effort to create probably, uh, you know, he would agree with this, uh, earth machines, tools of enlightenment, places you would visit to basically raise your consciousness, not just burial mounds. There were complexes everywhere, like in uh, Saul's Mound in Pinson, I'm sorry, uh, Tennessee. This is a 72-foot mound in the center of a 1,000-foot medicine wheel that once existed. And here's Cahokia, uh, 100 foot high in Collinsville, Illinois. Now this 14 acre base is one acre greater than the uh, Great Pyramid in Egypt. It required 22 million cubic feet of soil brought from a, over a mile away to create this four step pyramid. This is at its heyday, it was probably about 1200 AD. It has a real Mesoamerican feel and I believe in other research is that there was interaction between Native American tribes and, and cultures in uh, further south into Mexico. And you see the step pyramids are built with earth and not stone because they had no stone to do it. You have ball courts and, and, and astronomical clocks. It really seems like there was an influence there. They only had to cross the Rio Grande River. You know, it's not like they had to go across the Atlantic. So you see the astronomical orientations uh, possessed at the site are embedded. You have a wood hinge here. Just magnificent structures. And, and uh, all of the eastern United States was, was amazing with geometric forms and earthen pyramids. This kind of looks like Teotihuacan, actually. Um, one thing that really intrigued me was that there were so many geometric forms, like this one in Newark, uh, all around the eastern half of the country, 1,500 in Ohio alone. You can imagine just going in and seeing these 20 and 50 acre forms that are precisely built. This one here was investigated by Earlham College professors Hively and Horn in the 80s. And what they determined, they start they started thinking uh, it was a solar orientation, but they found that this site predicted eclipses and understood the 18.61 year metonic cycle of the moon. So astonishing um, um, things were happening in ancient America. And here it is right now, it's preserved as a golf course in part, but that gives you a size of the scope. The, the landscape was littered with things like this and, and quite different from what we were taught in school about Native American culture. Uh, and here, it was connected to Ch Chillicothe, 55 miles away. There was a several foot high uh, earthen walls, 189 foot apart, that traveled for 55 miles that hooked up to this site that also predict predicted eclipses. And it was more accurate at different times, I think, in the summer. So you had these processional walkways and incredible forms all around the United States. 27 acres right there. And Accounts like this, old royal tomb unearthed, bones wrapped in pearls, skulls of two in copper helmets, silver and tortoise shell ornaments dug up. You know, kings and queens were buried in these, in these uh, burial mounds with copper crowns and, and treasures. This is from Spiro Mound, very intricate copper work. That's in uh, Oklahoma that was found in the 30s. Moundsville, you have the symbol of the hand of the eye that was found in Alabama. Steatite panther from Ohio, very intricate and amazing uh, artistry. Beaver, nice. And in one mound we visited in the show, Mound City, they found a cache of, of dozens of these pipes, possums and wildcats. Look at them, how beautifully they, they look like they came out of a machine, just amazing stuff, very cool. And in one site, the original Hopewell site in Chillicothe, they found that there were trade routes all around the country. They found all these artifacts in one burial mound site. Obsidian from Wisconsin, silver from Canada, shells from the Gulf Coast. So there were massive 
trade networks in ancient America. It was a super highway of activity. And then a giant problem occurred. You know, when I was investigating, what I was doing was looking through historical texts for accounts of stonework existing in New England before the colonists showed up. And I found many accounts like that. But then I also started to find accounts like this in George Sheldon's 1895, the Sheldon Town History of Deerfield. It read, one of these skeletons was described by Henry Mather, who saw it, monstrous size, the head as big as a peck basket with double teeth all around. The skeleton was examined by Dr. Stephen W. Williams, who said the owner must have been nearly eight feet high. So Williams was a doctor who taught anthrop uh, I'm sorry, anatomy at Berkshire College. Sheldon was a well-known, respected historian, one of the first pre preservationists in the country. And he was just, you know, uh, just highly respected. And I said, you know, what is this all about? What is double rows of teeth? And I talked to my brother about it, and, and we were just kind of dumbfounded. So I read through thousands of pages of town and county histories in New England. I started to find similar finds. Right here, town of Middleborough, 1906, the, uh, when the highway was st uh, straightened, Dr. Moore Robinson found a skeleton with double rows of teeth in each jaw. That's pretty specific. Must have been at least seven, eight. Martha's Vineyard, same thing. Man easily seven feet high, and it goes out of its way to note an unusual feature was a complete double row of teeth on both the upper and lower jaws. It seems like these historians are really going out of the way to, to document this strange anatomic anomaly. And we, we investigated this one in the show right here. Uh, underneath the Baptist church in Newton, Mass., Buried in the box was a, a jawbone with double rows of teeth. And we thought, yeah, we're going to get to this. We'll, we'll go to the church. But then we found out it's gone. It's a used car lot now. So we were never able to verify this account with double rows of teeth. But the skeptics are all over us like, oh, it's a hoax or a fantasy or a delusion or whatever the hell they think. But this is, you know, these accounts are pretty specific, you know, like this one here. The Bates Mound in Ohio, three skeletons, eight feet. They crumbled to dust, but the remarkable feature, just like the other uh, Martha's Vineyard account of these remains where they had double teeth in the front as well as in the back in both the upper and lower jaws. Now, just like many accounts, it crumbled back to earth, which is unfortunate. That alone just begs is this some mystery here, just these accounts, but there are many that were put on display that we'll talk about. Even newspaper accounts had this. An extinct race of giant human beings were covered in their, uncovered near Vasa, Minnesota. Each had double teeth in front as well in the back part of the jaw. Once again, really going all the way to emphasize that strange anatomic anomaly. Yeah, I know this. Yeah, I've met people with double rows of teeth, and they usually get them removed at birth. It's like a rare genetic uh, condition in humans. So much like six fingers and six toes, maybe it has something to do with that, where it's just part of our genetics. Uh, all throughout history, the Great Chronicle is often mentioned giants like Flacivius Joseph. In Hebron, there were till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations of other men. And I'm sorry, Flavius Josephus. This was around 200 AD. But you know, this is an account by a well-respected chronicle, just like so many others, uh, who, you know, it's like a, a cop, you know, they're, they're trained in observation, they're making these specific notations, and are we supposed to take them at face value or just dismiss them all as some strange fantasy? This one is particularly interested. Professor Chris Coombs, uh, I've talked to, he wrote The Giants of Wales, and he's talking about, you know, he's weaving together all these accounts, 
he's looking at it from a mythological standpoint. I may look at it from a more specific standpoint when you talk about different giants like the giant of Gabera, fully nine feet nine inches in measure and height. And then this one, in the time of Hadrian the Emperor, there was raised from the earth in a place called Masana in Carthage, the body of the giant called Ida, who was 20 feet in length and who had double sets of teeth or two rows of teeth still standing completely preserved in his head or in his gums. I know that's a freak show and it sounds really weird, but this ancient account is going out of its way to specifically note double rows of teeth associated with giants. I found that really compelling, so I contacted the professor and, and talked about that. New York Times, like you said, you have these accounts right here. The skull was as large as a half bushel measure, and they're talking about um, a nine foot tall, over nine foot tall individual in a burial mound. One of the arguments of skeptics is that these are like mastodon remains or dinosaur bones or misidentifications. These are human burial mounds noted with specific uh, Native American artifacts and they're opened and this is what you get for you know, 150 years off of these wild reports. I'm not gonna claim they're all you know, accurate, but they're pretty specific in, you know, in terms of the time they're trying to convey what they found, a half bushel measure, uh, head as big as a peck basket and sometimes, many times specific measurements that's nine foot tall right there. That was Robert Waldo, and um, he had a disease condition called pituitary gigantism. But that is what nine foot tall would look like. Yeah, pretty large. Check this out, you know, just the skeleton measures eight feet from the top of the head to the ankles, the feet being missing. The skull is large enough to fit as a helmet over the average man's head. The skeleton was one of several buried in the form of a whale under a mound with the feet toward the hub. Buried like the spokes of a whale is an obscure Native American burial technique that you see all over the place, even the Aleutian Islands. And whoever made the, you know, oftentimes you know, these are like respected individuals, but whoever is making up this report, they know this obscure Native American burial technique, and then they talk about, like, in hundreds of these accounts, the jawbone fits over the head or the skull fits over the head like a helmet. So all these people in a time of inefficient communication all independently came up with these same specific you know, um, measurements and, and, and suggestions that they were encountering giant bones, that's, it's a real compelling argument. Like, they all made it up. These are all hoaxes, every one of them. It doesn't seem logical and reasonable. And uh, it keeps going and going. At the Chickasaba Mound in Arkansas, you have this from the Field Museum in Chicago, the famous museum. This is in their notes. And Curtis Little excavated that in 1903, and this is what he found. The skeletons were very large and tall, one femur bone was unearthed that was 29 inches in length. The skulls are extremely large. The jar is of such size that it would slip over my own and have considerable space to spare. We have like 150 of those accounts that talk about the jawbone fits over the, the, the jar of the largest man in the village. The town is a buzz. You know, it's just amazing the specificity that you, you find over and over again. This is the Field Museum. 29 inches is a freak show. You're talking like pushing nine feet. So that's a specific measurement. Curtis Little, well-respected, would have to make that up entirely because he's not dealing with the mastodon bone. So once again, it uh, adds to the compelling nature of this. Right here, the curator of physical anthropology, a paleoanthropologist named W.J. Holland at the Carnegie unearthed between an eight and nine foot skeleton, listed in Scientific American right here. And uh, my friend contacted the Carnegie. They said, I, I think the, there was very little left to it. There's just some bone fragments, um, unfortunately but just another well-respected professional verifying an enormous account of a giant skeleton 
buried in an Adena burial mound. Uh, Miamisburg, where Hugh talked about this a little, but this is another compelling account from 15, uh, 1897. It's laid out in here, it's, it's eight foot, one and a half inches. Like some of the greatest scientists at the times flocked here and examined the skeleton. They listed it as one of the greatest giants ever found. And no other than the head of physical anthropology for the Smithsonian examined it and said this, the authenticity of the skull is beyond doubt. Its antiquity is unquestionably great. To my own personal knowledge, several such crania were discovered in the Hopewell group of mounds. The head of anthropology, you know, the greatest mind, anthropological mind in the country, is saying this about an eight-foot, one-and-a-half-inch skeleton found. You know, there are arguments like, and I've talked to anthropologists with my friends, and, you know, you have disarticulation, the, the, the soft tissues disintegrate, the bones stretch out, skeletons can look larger, you know. But when you wire together a skeleton, you just can't screw up five, seven, and eight foot two. You know, it just, it just doesn't happen. I've talked to archaeologists on the Roanoke show. Brian, a um, friend of mine now, he said, you know, disarticulation, I'm not buying it, basically. You know, you, you have accounts like this, and it's really worthy of further investigation, I would say. Yes. I like this picture because this, this chipmunk is, like, so grateful to get the flower, you know. So, it was, yeah. <laughs> That's a real picture. Yeah, no, it's, I didn't take it, but it... Uh, isn't that nice? Yeah, that's, that's lovely. It's wicked awesome. So in 1933, George Fisher, he's, he's the head archaeologist for the state of Pennsylvania. He unearths what is called 49 giants, you know, uh, very large skeletons. The largest, there's teeth, there's all kinds of bones there, is seven foot five. It's a buzz, it's the New York Times. I've, I looked into all of Fisher's records, very interesting account. So this man enters the, the picture, Donald Cadzow, and he's working with Fisher, and he takes the, the, the article, this is six months later, telling the same story about the bones are being shipped to the Smithsonian, they're going to Harrisburg, and then they're being shipped to the Smithsonian. Cadzow says the same thing. He's cruising in a van with the seven-foot-five skeleton. He's from uh, Cambridge, uh, England, very well-trained, respected archaeologist at the time, and it clearly states that he has a seven-foot-five skeleton that's going to the Smithsonian, that was found by Fisher at this site. And, you know, once again, these this guy is, like, well-respected. Why would he put his career on the line and, and, and tell this story, you know, to spin a fable? It just seems really odd that you have so many of these respected individuals in the 20s and 30s and 40s saying the same thing. And right here is a very interesting account. Donald Dragoo, the head of the section of man at the Carnegie in the 50s, in 58, uncovered a seven foot two inch skeleton. It's not, you know, eight two, but it shows that there were enormous race of, or not race, a, uh, a royal class of Native Americans buried in the mound. Now he uncovered this because they destroyed this mound, and he had a chance to do it. He was noted as the last great Adena scholar. There's a skeleton there, measured at seven foot two inches, and in 1952, another University of Kentucky anthropological dig at the Dover Mound uncovered a seven-foot skeleton with an unusually thick skull. Webb and Snow, University of Kentucky anthropologists unearthed it. You know, it, it's just telling more of that story of a large um, royal class of Native Americans, you know. Seven foot and tall are like, like he was saying, you know, the Osage Indians warriors, the greatest warriors is six and a half to seven feet and taller. Jefferson met with them, and not talking skinny NBA guys, like massive, robust, you know, they called them noble and stately and handsome, like they, they had uh, some genes that I want. <laughs> In the show, we uh, checked out this account, the Steelville Giant. 
So it was a geologist, Brad Dubler, my brother. And right here is the site where an eight-foot skeleton was unearthed in 1933. We have the whole account. It was wired together in Dr. Parker's office. We, in fact, found a tooth right here, which was pretty cool. And it was large. All I could think about was when they found the Denisovan tooth, they thought it was a bear cave's tooth because it was so large. They didn't even think it was human. So we were all freaking out. We went to the coroner. We sent away for DNA analysis. But it ended up being a bison's tooth. But it was just a kind of cool twist of the story that was right here where the skeleton was unearthed. So we go through the records, we meet Billy Harmon's family who found the skeleton, and everybody in town knew about it, and uh, you know, if Billy said it, you could, if my grandfather said it, you could take it to the bank. In the microfilm, we found this guy, Les Eaton, six foot tall, with an eight foot tall skeleton, laid out in the doctor of, uh, I'm sorry, the hallway of Doc Parker. So we found that in the archives, it was very cool, a, a, you know, an eight foot skeleton, and, and it was shipped to the Smithsonian, noted specifically, packed up. And, you know, we'll get into that story and, and see what that's all about. Another interesting twist and turn in this story is while I dug into these stories, I started to find that the Freemasons of Rosicrucians, other mystics and secret societies all talk about giants existing in the land of Atlantis. And they look at these accounts as proof that Atlantis existed and that that is the place where they got all their esoteric, esoteric knowledge. And I find it really compelling that they're all saying the same thing. Like Edgar Casey, in one of his trance-like readings, if you don't know Casey, he gave 25,000 readings in over 14 million words over several decades, mostly on health issues for people, helping you know, with, with their, their health matters. But he started to uh, talk about, in a trance state, Atlantis and Egypt a lot. And, and they asked more questions. And he gave this broad explanation, much like Plato, of what Atlantis was all about. Very compelling. When asked about the people there, this is what he said. They took on many sizes as to stature from that that may be called the midget to the giants. For there were giants in the earth in those days, men as tall as what would be termed today 10 to 12 feet in stature and well-proportioned throughout, which is funny. Well-proportioned throughout shows up in these accounts over and over again. Casey talked about the mound builders in ancient America 68 specific times. He talked about their migrations from... Uh, the Mesoamerican cultures that they were practicing human sacrifice, the fact that they wanted to create a benevolent culture in the United States, and that they were very, very tall. And this is out of left field from a guy with an eighth grade education and a trance state. And if you read through his stuff, you know, I'm kind of a real Edgar Cayce fan. And what he also talked about, one of the, the origins uh, that some people believe is that in Atlantis, giants existed. Casey said that the earthen mounds, a lot of the sites like Circleville and Portsmouth here, were representations of the central city of Atlantis. Now this is just like Plato's central city of Atlantis. It's really compelling, and you find them everywhere. And there's ditches and moats, and, and the, the, the mound that was the center of Atlantis, the mountain, Mount Olympus, and, and archeologists can't figure out why there's all these moats and, and other things, and what these geometric forms are all about. It's just a really compelling theory that I, I, I tend to lean towards. I really, uh, I don't know. I'm a, a dense fellow. Uh, I, I can't say that I'm clairvoyant, but I've always had this in my, you know, I, I look and sound like the guy you place a bet with, you know. I understand that. But the reality is I, I really think there is more to existence than we're, we're taught, in, and uh, I have a, a holographic view of things, and, and I believe Atlantis was part of the story, you know, and people give me crap all the time, and I'm like, that's just the way it is.
Rudolf Steiner also said the same thing. And it's odd. They also talk, just like Madame Blavatsky, about little people. And Ross's friend, Vine Deloria, was a Lakota elder. And he was, he was awesome. He synthesized so much Native American lore that was just like left out there to, to be lost. And he was, a, he was an activist that fought for Native American rights. He was really cool. And he worked with uh, Ross. They got together a conference of Native elders from all around the country to speak of the lost knowledge of the, of the tall ones and little people. He, in fact, said there was almost more ancient lore about little people than there were about giants. And we have accounts we stumbled across, graveyards of little people, and even some of the more well-known anthropological digs like Moundville, uh, Snow, who found the seven-foot giant uh, in Kentucky, found two dwarf uh, burials side by side. As it, they, they were like feared and revered. They were malevolent beings that, that the natives feared, and then they were wizards who built temples. So it's like Lord of the Rings, you know? And Rosicrucian science confirmed. Once again, I find, I'm like fascinated that the Rosicrucians are, are into giants. <laughs> so this is the, right here, the giant nearly eight feet tall. This is the one that went the Smithsonian that I, I talked about, but Rosicrucian science confirmed. You know, I'm not making this stuff up. It kind of organically came together. And I'm just piecing it together and standing back and, and letting people make up their own mind. Um, our boy George Washington also in 1754, while building a fort for the Virginia militia, uh, noted that the skeletons they were uncovering by accident were over seven foot tall. Also the Freemasons, same thing. The Bone Cave is a perfect example. We enter the Bone Cave in episode five. Let me get out of here for a second, please. I'm gonna show you a clip. La -dee -da. Hopefully this works. In the meantime, Jim and Bill have decided to squeeze in one last trip to a location known simply as the Bone Cave. So you've been talking about this Bone Cave for about 10 years. I mean, this is one of the best stories that you've ever told me. Right? Big time. Jawbone over the face, giant skulls, different accounts too over 50, 60 years. Reports from local newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century tell of a deep and winding cavern where torch-wielding explorers on several occasions emerged with giant bones. My first impression of the Bone Cave account was that it was a hoax. It was a tall tale. It's like an Indiana Jones movie. Three different teams of explorers reported essentially the same finds. Underground lake and passages going out in every direction. That's crazy. But what makes the Bone Cave site even more fascinating is that it is right in the middle of the remains of an ancient civilization, widely known as the Mound Builders. Mound Builders were indigenous American peoples who lived in the middle of the continent, from Louisiana to the Great Lakes, and built ceremonial earthworks beginning at 3400 BC through the 16th century. Numbers of enormous skeletons were reportedly discovered inside these ancient mounds. For that reason, some believe they are the burial places of giants. But where are these giant skeletons? Many remains were repatriated. Possibly returned to native tribes according to federal repatriation laws. It just seems like it slipped through the hands of history. Kings and queens, giants buried in burial mounds with copper crowns and treasures of pearls. It just boggles the imagination of the unbelievable nature of native civilization. A civilization that has haunted the imagination of generations of Americans, including this man, commonly held to be the nation's greatest president, 
Abraham Lincoln. The core of Lincoln's fascination with the mound builders? Giants. In 1848, Abraham Lincoln writes about giants found in the mounds in his Niagara speech. Lincoln writes, the eyes of that species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara, as ours do now. At the time, it really seemed that people just accepted the idea that there were giants buried in burial mounds all around the country. Lincoln even took a little-known steamboat trip in November of 1848. His purpose? A pilgrimage to the great mound sites of the Ohio River Valley. But was Lincoln correct in his belief that giants were buried in those mounds? So if you have... I'd like to keep watching. That was a cool episode. That was... So we went into the bone cave, and it was a freak show. There must have been a rock fall, and the, it wasn't, you know, they gin up a lot of stuff in the show, and a lot of, a lot of shows are based on, like, fake interpersonal conflict and phony danger because they got nothing, no good story to tell. And we fought against all, you know, but we trust our production team. But, you know, they, they want drama, and, and uh, you know, and that's not our style. So this was legit. We went in, and there was a passageway, and my brother's bigger than I, and, and I swear to God, you had to, like, exhale to get through and slide the whole thing and then you got into this cavernous area and we were caught we were like trying to put it in the back of our minds and at some point we get the, get the hell out of here but we found basically we found that there were two three teams of explorers who were in there and in 1872 1899 and 1950 they all reported finding giant remains and the last one two of the teams were the heads of the um the editors of the newspaper the manchester democrat and the manchester times wielding torches going deep into this cave. And the last account essentially said that there was a giant mummified body that was left there. And they talk about, you know, like uh, passageways, flooded tunnels, and that's what we said. This is, this is a hoax. It can't be true, because it sounds so fantastic. You know, giant skeletons and everything else. So we got down, we dropped down like 50 feet. I don't know where the bottleneck is here. We got in the vaulted space, and there we found the carved dates of 1872 and 1899 and the torch marks of the explorers. Then we continued on, and I got into a flooded tunnel that went like 150 feet. And it was really, I had to put on suit for hypothermia. The air was really bad. I went, I didn't have a GoPro, and the uh, cameraman couldn't go underneath because the roof got so, so narrow. So I went 150 feet. I got to the end, and there was this cavernous thing that opened up, and I just couldn't continue. It looked like it went on and on. The moral of the story is, and the safety guy was freaking out. We, got, we had to get the hell out of there. We want to go back and explore this further. It's an awesome place. But we verified that these teams of, of, of explorers were there. And, but they all encountered giant skeletal remains and reported them and pulled some out of the cave. Did they all independent? You know, the newspaper editor, he's like the guy you trust, right? Like the mayor. Is he going to lie or, or succession of these people? I'm not saying, you know, I'm not showing you the giant skeleton right now, but I'm just saying it's a really compelling story. And uh, this one we investigated in the show here, a naturalist named Riggins, he uncovered these in a big shelter cave on the White River, no, what, what is it? It was a series of, it was on the White River uh, in Arkansas. So we went down, this is a New Age magazine also, Rosicrucian publication, his skulls of giant cavemen, almost 10 feet tall. So we were like, yes, let's get to this cave and check it out. And we went down there, it was underwater, so we dove, and we found this massive shelter cave with a professional diver, Mike Young, 
and there's a 70-foot berm, a wall there, that showed occupation. But obviously, there was nothing that could be done at that point because the Beaver Dam had flooded the whole valley. But just another cool account, I, I must say, this guy, Victor Schaufelmeyer, was a well-known newspaper editor who traveled the country with his wife and was highly respected and reported this. Just another really respected individual reporting something out of the ordinary. This is a, a full chapter is dedicated to this subject here, one of our favorite uh, stories of giants. And it starts in 1930 with a mining engineer named uh, J.H. Coker, who unearthed eight-foot skeletal remains in the Yaqui region in Sonora, Mexico. This man joined him, the head of archaeology, Byron Cummings, for the University of Arizona. So Cummings goes down. They encounter the fierce Yaqui Indians, who they, they don't take any shit from the American government, the Mexican government. They like, they're, they're badass. And they were, they were pissed off that they were down there digging up this burial mound. So the Yaqui Indians destroy these giant bones, and it's documented by the head of archaeology at the University of Arizona. So then this other man, Paxson Hayes, shows up on the scene, and he actually lives with the Yaqui Indians for seven years, gets to know them, and they reveal to him the lost city of giants. It sounds like a sci-fi movie, but it's an actual place. So we found 35 mummies, 34 mummies over seven feet tall, and this is him right here. Paxson Hayes, he's an explorer. Like I said, he lived with the Yaqui Indians. This guy was amazing. He would go for, for days on, on, on backpack with mules to, to um, find the lost city. And then there, for 20 years, there were reports of this, this giant city that he found. And it almost looks like a fake picture. And we met with his son, and he said that his dad took five images, and this was one of them with flash powder, old style, because it was so far in. And this is the actual place where we found the 34 mummies. In the show we were trying to get here, um, and there was such a, tra a fierce tra travel warning that was so dangerous, and you know, fighting the cartel in a gun battle would have made good TV, but you know, it's, it's not, not my style, so we gotta wait and try to get back to this place, because it's absolutely fascinating. So these are original press release photos that we got from the 30s, 34, 35. And this is one, a bundle of one of the seven and a half foot mummies. Right there you see photo, one of the giant mummies, entrance of the cave, this mummy's seven and a half feet tall, and they tell the whole story. A cave 450 miles inland, there's this massive uh, complex of caverns, and I believe his son Carlos knows where it is, so we'll see about that. There's a giant mummified head that he found, and right here, the Smithsonian is amazed, actually it's not six and a half, seven and a half foot uh, mummies, but he got in an argument or a, uh, in a disagreement with Roy Chapman Andrews at the Smithsonian, Paxson Hayes did. For some reason, he didn't believe the findings or they were just not in line with uh, the orthodox science of the time. So he lost his funding, but he continued for 20 years to, to study this area. And his son said, you know, he said that he wasn't afraid. He, he continued to the end. He was, they attempted to professionally embarrass him, but he, he knew what he believed. This guy was, he's like Carlos Castaneda. This cat was awesome. We were out, we're cruising, and my brother says, this is like Breaking Bad. It's like off the grid, and we get to this place in like Tucson, like south of it, and we're sitting on the cinder blocks, and this guy's a real deal. He was awesome. So 1950, he has a burial robe, and he brings it to the Tiburon Native Americans, the, the elders there, to figure out, you know, because even the Sonora people talked about the legends of the giants, and the Yaqui Indians pointed in the right direction. So it's a compelling story. Uh, that lasted for 20 years. And then two years ago, they found 22 skulls in the region. 13 of them were elongated like this. 
which is it's turning into a sci-fi movie. This is a question everyone asks. And to this I would say, you know, I have a lot of friends who are anthropologists and archaeologists. I've worked with two archaeological teams in, in the shows I've done. And, you know, when I first started this, I felt like I was trying to make the case. Uh, no, no, what happened was I was sh sharing interesting information. Then I got turned around. I, I just caught a lot of heat. Like, you're out of your minds, you know, really, like personal attacks and where I'm from. You know, somebody's going home in a stretcher, and I was like really, really irritated that people like just personally insulted me. So I, I moved in a direction where, you know, like I was trying to defend this, like this is a reality, you have to believe it. And then I, I stepped back and I said, no, the reality is this is worthy of further investigation. That's the only case I'm going to make. And I encourage everyone to, to investigate what they love to do. So I've shifted my focus, and I, I, I am no longer going to try to, uh, you know, say, oh, this is definitely real. You know, I was, I was equating it incorrectly, and I was believing um, inaccurately, and I just shifted my position and said, no, no, that's really what I'm trying to do is just share a really cool story. You know, Smithsonian conspiracy, I can't say they have the secret vault with all the skeletons. I am friendly with uh, some Smithsonian archaeologists and anthropologists, and Dennis Stanford is the head of anthropology, and I'm very fond of him, salutary in theory, he's very open-minded. So 100 years ago, though, there could have been some funky business going on, and this is what people think when they think Smithsonian. And I don't want to cast aspersions because there are really good professionals there. I am not, I believe with mo you know, most of uh, archaeological and anthropological theory, but there, there's a, many theories that I don't believe with, uh, believe in and agree with, and you know, we'll talk about them. This is my man Voltaire said it best. This is the guy. Uh, the head of physical anthropology, the first head in 1909, Dr. Herdlichka, and he was a, a zealous, a racist, pre-Nazi eugenist, kind of uh, not a great guy. He was, he was brilliant in his own right, but he's the guy who said giants are no more, even though in their own records they have over 17 accounts of 17 in, uh, seven, uh, seven foot and tall skeletons found by their own scientists. And this is kind of nauseating, but this is what he was saying, and he, he had a, a, you know, a cabal of racists that worked with him. And this is the kind of sentiment of the time, that African Americans, Native Americans, they were inferior, all this nonsense, and certainly a large Native American skull was not welcomed in the debate. <laughs> Oddly, he found one in the Aleutians with a cubic capacity of 2,005 uh, cubic centimeters, uh, <laughs> which is really ironic, right? So... These, in all kinds of accounts, the Smithsonian has shown their scientists to find seven-foot-tall skeletons in their own ethnology reports. This is the, uh, one of the most interesting ones. In 1873, this appears. Perrin reports from the Smithsonian. He found this in a burial mound. The skulls are very large, but fall to pieces on being exposed to the air. One skull was found that measured 36 inches in circumference. circumference. That is like so well out of normal range by a respected, you know, scientist at the time. Granted, it wasn't five years ago, but 36 inches is very specific, and so far at a normal range, it is just outrageous. Seven-foot-eight skeleton found by Professor Norris in the Smithsonian Ethnology Report, noted in the New York Times, and then two uh, people get together in the West Virginia Historical Magazine and debate. They talk about Norris finding it, seven feet eight, and then they find a giant ax, and years later, and they're wondering if that giant axe belonged to the giant, which opens up another vector here, which is giant tools that were found all over the place. 33-pound, 10-inch axe head. That's, that's pretty hefty. 
Uh, copper axe is found in the site mound, 32 and 41 pounds. Oftentimes you have these accounts of, of giant tools being buried with giant uh, native rulers. Really interesting. The thought is, or the theory is that they're ceremonial, but a lot of them show wear, and it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's like all around the world. A couple of years ago, Oxford scientists at the lowest level of a basin in South Africa uncovered these, the four largest hand axes called in the world at the time. Worked by hand, uh, they didn't know what to make of it. They, they, they just found them with like 10,000 normal size artifacts. And it, in the realm of, I'm sorry, in the area that we were talking about Heidelberg and it's this uh, strain living, you know, it, it could be that all these pieces come together and actually prove the reality of this at some point, that science verifies this. It, it's crazy that things have happened. Uh, the Smithsonian account, this skeleton, this is for people who love New England stonework. This is a uh, North Carolina mound that was unearthed and how these beehives here, like we see out in the woods. Uh, this right here was a skeleton that was noted to be well over seven foot tall. And then you have many accounts, thighs and skulls sent to the Smithsonian. This account here, it's called the world's largest skull at the time. It was enormous. It was uh, verified by or studied by a physical anthropologist, Marcus Goldstein, who said, here's Goldstein here, that it wasn't an endocrine pathology. Uh, it was enormous. It was at the Morehouse Mound in uh, 1939. I contacted the head of records, there's Duff and the archeologist, I'm sorry. Uh, I talked to the lead archeologist at the Texas Archeological Research Lab and they don't have it anymore. And you know, it wasn't like, oh no, you know, it's the men in black got it. He said, we deal with hundreds of thousands of artifacts and curate a lot and he said that you know, uh, after the original find, there's very little evidence of where it, where it went or what happened to it. But, you know, it's really odd that the largest skull in the world at the time isn't around. And that's the frustration we encounter. Because I want, like this account I'll show you right here, it's really interesting. So you have multiple, I got like 15 accounts of large seven and eight foot tall skeletons found. They're all talking about the Maryland Academy of Science who found several of these. So anyways, Widgeon, the naturalist at the time, found these, wired them together at the Franklin Street office at the Maryland Academy of Sciences, the oldest scientific institution in the country, founded in 1792. So I contact the head of records, Linda Jo Nelson, and I say, Linda, you know, can, I'll pay you for your time. Could you go through, find these accounts? If they're five, seven, if the, the, you know, somebody had too many martinis for lunch and couldn't work a tape measure, just tell me what the story is. So she was fascinating. She was digitizing all the records. Here's the guy, Widgeon, African-American, born into slavery. And he was one of the best or the most highly regarded naturalists in the country at the time who unearthed these skeletons. And he was still called the janitor. They didn't give him a title, which is sickening. And she talked about that and, and the repulsive nature of racism. But she went through the records and could not find a whiff of the skeletons. No measure of them. They talk about uh, the, the president of the institution, uh, why, you know, uh, present while they wire him together. She said, this is right where I work. I went through every, everything. I could not find anything that talked about what happened to them, what the measurements were, nothing. And she contacted the Smithsonian. They didn't get them. They weren't repatriated. Just another real frustrating aspect. We're just trying to figure out, well, was it massive mismeasurement? Was it something else? Was it disease condition, which we don't think so? So it's kind of frustrating is the moral of the story. You have these all around the world. I bring this one up. This was a peer-reviewed case in 1590, at the lowest level, a Neolithic burial mound in France, they found these bones. And they are bones, they are a <clears throat> femoral midshaft and other bones that would indicate an 11-foot man. Now, this isn't just one. The thickness 
And the measurements indicate that. And this is Lepange, the anthropologist. He's well-regarded anthropologist, respected by Madison Grant, and even included in Topinage journals. His atheistic, Darwinian, socialist, anti-Semitic, eugenist views made his discovery of giant bones all the more noteworthy. So the guy wasn't too slick on being a good guy, but it was really noteworthy that he pointed this out. He said that his calculations indicated it was three and a half meters tall, 11 foot six and 1,000 pounds. So just fascinating. And we've been looking at the University of Montpelier trying to hunt down these bones. You would figure they, right? Why wouldn't these still be available? You know, like again, I'm not saying a massive conspiracy, but ignorance, uh, a lack of care for the, these, these really astounding finds. But hopefully we can get to the bottom of this and, and have those bones analyzed. That is it's a compelling story. But you have these accounts everywhere, all over Europe. Look at the specific measurements in these ancient burial mounds. They're just enormous. And, you know, bones of giants. This one here, eight foot seven in a stone sarcophagus, over and over again. It makes your head spin. And um, this one here, in each case, the heads were of great size with huge jaw bones. Now, this is in France. And we showed you the map. It's just an astounding amount of accounts. And it's not just about a royal class of Native Americans. Native Americans actually talked about an ancient enemy that were giant in stature that their forefathers warred with. There's all this Native lore. All the oral traditions around the planet, same, uh, they share the same story of giants, of lost civilizations and cataclysms, and, and their, their reverence and fear of the heavens and their orientations of their astronomical sites point to a shared mother culture, a shared history all across the planet, like in Atlantis, if you will. And I'm, you know, uh, intrigued by the whole notion because in cultures that had no communication or were not supposed to have any communication, you hear the same stories by elders who embed, them, uh, embed the stories, you know, and pass them on to the storytellers word by word, like you said, that it's absolutely essential, you know, for their, their, their well-being that they keep these stories intact. It's just astounding. All around the globe at megalithic sites, Baalbek, Nan Madal, you find these accounts right here. American Geographical Society, and Captain Coffin shows up in the SS Nantucket, and they open the tomb of the giants uh, at Nanmadal, several human bones of gigantic size. We covered this in the show. My, my friend and landlord at the time actually taught science on um, Nanmadal, and he said all his native friends wouldn't go near the site. They thought a race of giants built it and levitated the stones, and you're like, oh, those superstitious natives, blah, 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 but that place is astounding. And there are accounts of the tombs being opened up, historical documents that say the giant bones were pulled out of there. Very, very compelling. And once again, he went, I think that's funny. I don't know why we have the same slide. Explorers, all the famous explorers you can name, DeSoto, Magellan, Drake, Smith, Vespucci, Coronado, all say the same things, that they encountered giant native chiefs from Virginia to Patagonia. Really astounding. Here's DeSoto's private secretary. They met Tuscaloosa, who ruled the Alabama region, and he was known to be over eight foot tall. His father was giant too. Seeing him, we paused, dumb with amazement, for though but a youth, he towered on high, a great limbed giant, heads of the tallest men reached only to his breast. They're either saying seven, eight, nine foot, or they specifically talk like the giant on his knees towered over our men, over and over again. And the conventional theory, or, or, or the orthodoxy says that the Spanish were like 5'2", and the natives are like 5'7", to 5'8". So that's what accounts for all this. But no, they're specifically noting these dudes are tall, and they say how massive they are, and their strength is incredible, and they, 
the, the glorious stature, which is kind of an odd thing, that, but even Jefferson talked about that noble presence, and the chiefs are always you know, uh, mentioned in, the, in, this, in this similar fashion. This is really interesting. The Codex Vaticano, this is made by uh, uh, Aztecs in the 1500s, I think, but they're, they're battling this giant. They're putting to death a giant. I, it's, it's the oddest thing, and it's in this codex uh, from hundreds of years ago. And in the, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic, so I have no, <laughs> like, vested interest to prove any religious theories here. I view these as historical documents that oftentimes have, have tantalizing clues in them. So right here, the Bible says in 2120 that Gath, the giant of Gath, I'm sorry, in the Battle of Gath, there was an army, uh, there was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes. So they're talking about this giant with six fingers and six toes. And oddly enough, uh, you have accounts like this where Bu Thomas Buckle says, commentators have collected various instances of men who, like this giant, have six fingers on their hands and six toes on their feet. All around the world, at petroglyph sites and other sites, you find this strange thing, six toes. That's a newspaper rock in Utah. And then you have the legends of the tall ones. The native people talk about the giants with six, uh, six toes. Chaco Canyon, same thing, six toes. Very odd. This guy, look at the feet. Six, right? It's like, whew. Michael Tellinger, uh, Hugh, Hugh uh, visited this, and there's six toes in here. I'm not claiming a giant stepped in the mud 200 million years ago. It could have been made by the native people as a warning, as a symbolism, as a remembrance. But that is ancient. And it's just the wildest thing. I don't know what to make of it, but it has six toes in there. And there have been anthropological finds recently that have really kind of very controversial and still debated, like the hobbits on Florensis in Indonesia. I think it was 2002. And they found a, a group of, of people that were, nine of them that were three and a half feet tall. And they don't know if it's what it is, basically, you know, what to make of it. But there were different theories. The moral of the story is that they are hobbit-like beings that live from 100,000 to 13,000 years ago on this tiny island where the native people had a, a myth about the Ibu Gogo, the little people, just like natives all around the, or indigenous people around the planet. And it turned out to be true that there were these little people that existed to like 12,000 years ago. So the aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It's simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same self le safe level, to breed a standard citizenry, and to put down dissent and originality. I really agree with that. You know, I promised Linus, my cat, that I'd get him in here too. So here he is. <laughs> and he's, he's modeling like he's a stuffed animal, but he, you could tell he's real. Yes, Linus is a good cat. He is a giant. Uh, you know, and that, that's the point I'm trying to convey and Hugh's trying to convey. It's just like, you know, to think outside the box that there's something seriously wrong with the planet. We all know it. That's why places like this exist. Just to have a different view on reality, to create a space of sanity where you accept everybody's opinion and viewpoint. You may not agree with them, but, you know, just to, to think differently. And the shows we make, we make them for kids to enjoy them. We make them to, to open people's minds to new ideas, to be interesting, hopefully. And I just, uh, you know, I feel blessed to be able to do this. Um, I just fell into it organically. It's like I was destined to be this dude that I am. It's, it's kind of crazy. But, uh, you know, I try to take it seriously in the, in the way that to have respect for all people and, and let them have their viewpoints and to tr try to convey that 
there's a different nature to reality than we think. Well, you guys probably think the same thing, actually, that most people think, you know, like a holographic reality. And do we obfuscate the truth from ourselves collectively? You know, we all share one holographic brain. It's like we're a species with amnesia from an ancient cataclysm in this latest incarnation of humanity. And do we obfuscate the truth from ourselves? It looks like this story. At every turn, something's happening that's really strange. And that happens many times. And, and, you know, if we chose ourselves, would we have war and chaos and greed on the planet? No. I really think that that's not humans are made up. But there is a, a, a distortion and misperception. And we can't just turn our backs on all humanity and just say, that's their problem, that guy's an idiot. That, you know, it's more like these are all our mistakes to correct. And this is a great example. The place is wonderful here that you don't spend your time battling a paradigm that's failing and doesn't work. You create a new model and blueprint for the way the world should work. And I do that myself by, like, like I said, building stone towers and cleaning the woods and volunteering and just trying to make a better world. And that's what matters. Uh, and, and, you know, like people like you, if we can keep doing that, we create a blueprint. If I talk to you like some conspiracy nut and, and cornered you for three hours, how would that change anything? If I try to convey what we're all trying to do here, that, that's how you make change in the world, and you change the holographic reality and create a better reality, like Edgar Casey would say. So that's kind of the message, my subversive message, is to try to spread that you know, to people so they, they, they get it, that you know, we're all connected. You can't just like, point out the people you don't like and be victimized by them. It's unfortunate. In other lifetimes, we've all made poor choices. We can't like, banish everybody because they've made lousy choices. We all have, and we all have in this life too. <clears throat> so um, I really uh, admire everything that's going on there. I'm really thankful that you guys have invited us and thumbs up to this place. Yeah. <clears throat>